welcome to the Clemson Drone Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Burgett from Clemson University. Join me as I dive into the world of drone technology and explore its impact to the eyes of industry leaders. Hear how drone technology directly supports public agencies, private companies, and entrepreneurs from those leading the innovation. If you're a seasoned UAS program manager or just getting into the game, this is a place to learn from the best to help your program soar to new heights. Make sure you subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss a single episode of the Clemson Drone Podcast. At Clemson Drone, the sky is not the limit, it's just the beginning. Hello, everybody. This is Joe Burgett, your host of the Clemson Drone Podcast. Uh, as you guys know from the intro, this is a, a podcast and a space to be able to just talk with folks that are either in the public sector or maybe a private company or an entrepreneur that are using drones to do their, their jobs uh, better, faster, safer, cheaper, and all those good things. And I'm very pleased to have a guest on today, Chris Harris, who I had a chance to meet at a, a conference uh, out west, Salt Lake City, the uh, the IHEAP conference a few months back where I got a chance to l- learn about uh, Chris's program. He was a presenter, so I got to kind of chance to, to see it from the presenter side where he got to present formally what he was doing. But then, you know, in between sessions, I got a chance to talk with him and get to know him a little bit and uh, learn more about what he's doing. He's got some great stuff, and uh, I'm excited to have him on the on the pod. So, Chris, thanks for thanks for being on the call. Yeah, appreciate you inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. So just kind of dive in a little bit about your background. So as I mentioned, you you work for the Oregon Department of Transportation. You've been there since 2008. Your educational background is in civil engineering from Virginia Tech, where you got your undergrad and master's. You are a licensed uh, professional engineer and have been working with several DOTs, including the PennDOT and Virginia DOT, and obviously Oregon now, who's, who's you're with currently. And your, your focus and your area of expertise is in UAS technology, obviously, and then uh, 3D project visualization. Does that kind of sum up the background a little bit? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, before we kind of talk about your, you know, how your formal program and, and how you're using drones at, at ODOT, you want to just kind of talk to me a little bit about how you got here. You know, obviously, I mentioned your, your background a little bit, but how did you get from from that into the DOT world and then start using start using drones. Sure, yeah, yeah, it's been a fun journey. So um, it all kind of started, went to school for engineering, I was trying to figure out what area I wanted to go into. Thought um, mechanical and, and working on race cars was gonna be my, my way and realized that things that are moving uh, have really difficult math and maybe I'm not so great at that. So uh, I ended up with internship at PennDOT and really enjoyed the time that I spent there. You know, the mix indoor office work and the outdoor type stuff really appealed to me. So I said, you know, civil's civil's a great path for me to follow. And then as I spent more time and, and went full-time in Virginia, I uh, had the opportunity to work at one of the materials labs with Virginia DOT and spent a lot of time, you know, testing materials, getting out on construction sites. And that was that was just the best, you know, getting out there, seeing things get built being able to, to problem solve in real time. You know, there are real, real things at stake while you're out there and, and um, your decision-making makes, makes an impact. And so I, I love that and was lucky enough to find a recruiting note on our board at college for Oregon DOT and gave them a call and they had a job out in their pavements group. So I hopped on that, packed up my bags, moved, moved to the West coast uh, and started my journey there. And it was great. Got to work for about seven years uh, doing pavement design, materials testing, and construction. And but out here, you know, a lot of people know the weather isn't all that great a lot of the year, and so we do most of our roadway construction at night and during the summer. 
And so that, you know, really started to take its toll on me and my family just being gone. I covered the whole state. Uh, and so it was a lot of long days, long nights, hotel rooms and things like that. So started looking for some other opportunities and was lucky enough that the group that I'm in now is just being developed by a visionary, our state surveyor, Ron Singh. This guy, he saw you know, 3D design, automated machine guidance, automated vehicles, all, all these things well before it was it was popular and, and normal in the industry. And so uh, I was lucky enough to, to interview and be selected as part of the one of the founding members of this engineering automation group that I'm in today. And uh, it's just been, it's been a ton of fun. Yeah. So when did you get into that automation group? And the reason I'm asking is because automation is a lot of different things, right? I mean, we're talking about drones, but there's a lot of things there. When did you get in that group and was drones uh, already part of that? Or was that something that you kind of brought into it? Sure. So that was back in 2015. Um, so that was pre part 107. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wasn't, I was brought in mostly for the construction side of things, um, automated machine guidance, uh, intelligent compaction, different different types of things like that, starting to learn a bit about survey. But they did have a gigantic hexcopter back then that um, had a whopping 12 minutes of flight time and took entire pickup truck to, to move all the gear that you needed to operate it around. Um, and so we didn't have much of a program, I would say then. It was, you know, it was one piece of equipment, two pilots that worked under a certificate of authorization with the FAA. So um, it was there. It was just kind of starting to get get figured out. Uh, and then, you know, obviously the next year, Part 107 came around and that changed the game for everybody. And so that gave us an opportunity to, to start building what, you know, you would consider a program at that point. It was still just kind of survey related. So we had a couple of pilots and they'd go out and do some survey work, but nobody else was really aware of what was going on or using it too much. And I was kind of on the sidelines, you know, I, that was one of the best parts of being in this group is our, our headquarters survey group was the other unit attached to it. And so they had all the best tools, you know, the LIDAR scanners, the drones, um, all the, all the cool GPS uh, technology. And so I kind of just watched on the sideline and waited to see how I could bring my engineering experience to the type of tools that, that they were trying to bring to, to ODOT. Now, when that program was first uh, launched and you were recruited into it, how many people were a part of it? Yeah, so I, I'd say there was probably maybe four pilots um, when I first got involved. And so, like I said, we had, you know, started building it up through survey. And then a couple years later, I, I saw an opportunity. We had, we had a little bit of extra money at the time. We had some good leadership around there, and so I brought I brought a initiative for us that you know we can do so much more with these drones than just survey rock quarries, and so I put together this this little request for uh, what I call the U.S. expansion initiative, mm-hmm. and so what what that had was um, getting two new pilots trained, so me and one of my coworkers, uh, and then then what we did was we. We learned about the technology and then we took it out across the state. And so we did a little road show. And the point of the road show was to first educate people, make them aware of the technology that's available, what it can do, some ideas for ways to implement it. But then sit and listen to what their problems were, the roadblocks Mm. they're running into, and seeing if this was the right fit for them. Because really often in this, you know, technology automation space, we find a solution and we go look for a problem. 
And, right, yeah. and that fails a lot when you do that. So yeah. we wanted to have, have this two-way conversation, really sit down and listen and go, okay, what are you guys up against? What, what happens in your day-to-day lives um, where technology might be a fit to, to do it better, easier, safer, whatever that might be? And, and so, yeah, we were able to go out there and really connect with, with the folks around the state. Yeah, no, I love that approach. So just to kind of recap, so, I mean, you, you, you had a program primarily servicing the, the surveyor field. You got a little bit of funding to maybe buy a, a more general drone or whatever, just a little bit more equipment. But then you went out and instead of like saying, you know, hey, we have this tool, you know, let's go find a problem that we can deploy it on, go into the, to the users and go to a district or whatever. And, and first educating them a little bit, like, so here are the things that we can do. This is the tool. These are the things it can do. And then go to the boots in the ground and say, okay, where, where would you, you know, if there weren't all these barriers or whatever, where would you deploy this tool? And then they gave you feedback. And based off of that, then you kind of built your program or expanded your program around that. Is that kind of a fair way of describing it? Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Um, and and I think one of the great advantages we had there too was that we came and we wanted to prove that we could add value. So we didn't ask anything more than we needed from them. We said, we're going to bring the equipment. We're going to bring the, the pilots. Um, we're not going to ask to charge your project. Um, so let's go out there and let's prove this thing first because not only – do we get to prove about the the value added to them, but you know we're a young budding program as well, so we have a lot of learning to do right. at the same time. And so it gave us an opportunity to mature a little bit, build out our workflows, but then also say, no, this this really is a good fit and it adds adds value to a transportation project. You know, it's funny that you describe it that way because honestly, when uh, you know ODOT's obviously a government organization, but when you talk about private companies and entrepreneurs that kind of start doing this. That's kind of the same thing that they do is, okay, we've got something here that we think we can do. Let's go try to, let's touch our customers and develop trust with them, show them what we can do. Uh, we don't have tons of experience. Maybe we, we give away a few projects, you know, you know, you know eat the cost or whatever to develop the, the trust, the, the workflows, as you said, you know, kind of getting the mistakes done on your dime so that when you're charging customers, even though, you know, your folks aren't necessarily customers in some respects, they are, you've got those things down, you know, you're, you're then a professional. So it's, it's kind of, it's really interesting the way that you, the, the way you're mirroring what works in the private sector. So, uh, I mean, I want to dive into a little bit of those road shows. So what did those, did those look and feel like? How many people were there? Did you go to them? You know, what prep did you do on the front end? How, how did those go down? Yeah, um, it was it was different depending on where we went. So if we went up to our, our Portland's uh, design office, we went up there with probably three or four folks. So we tried to represent the survey operations as well, because that was a big part of what we were doing. But And they had most of the experience. But then we had me and that other pilot one as well. And so it, it started off as you know as a presentation of mm-hmm. what what have we done so far? What are kind of the, the legal requirements, the operating requirements? Because those were fairly well understood with Part 107. But then we went and just did some research about you know, what are other people doing? What are other areas, you know, environmental construction, merge inspection? So try to try to give them some starter ideas of here, here are applications that we've seen uh, and, and how might that relate to what you do every day? Uh, and so, you know, like, like I said, the Portland office, we had pretty good attendance there, you know, maybe 20, 25 people. Other offices out in, you know, central and eastern Oregon were a little bit smaller offices. It might only have been four people, construction, 
uh, engineer, maybe the environmental, a, a geologist, and maybe right away folks or something like that. So it was it was a really mixed bag, but in, in both cases, I feel like we got really good engagement, and that's what we were looking for. Sometimes with the with the bigger group, people are afraid to step up and speak up. But I think the excitement that comes with this kind of technology really gets, really gets the yeah. juices flowing and gets people excited. And so right. that was one of the more, more fun events that, that I've got to do because it was really engaging. So, well, after you had those conversations and, and you had already said a couple of times that, you know, surveying still, you know, big, huge applications. And then we get that, right? I mean, that's a natural use case, but, and you mentioned a few things, but what, what do they come back? What are the type of missions that you guys fly now? I mean, what are the, you know, what are the more bread and butter? And then what are like the more exotic ones that you do? Sure. So, um, go, going back to the, what came out of that road show, we had a lot of great ideas. And so one, uh, one of the first ones was a planning effort. And so there, we get in early, they were building a, proposing a bike path uh, to connect a couple of communities out, out in rural Oregon in the mountains and access to that location was, was restricted. Now there used to be a bridge, now there's not a bridge. So the folks that trying to visualize, you know, what is this path going to look like? They, they couldn't see it. They can only look at, you know, Google Earth or something like that. And so we're able to, to go and fly video for them to show them a first person view. This is what it's going to look like as you, as you would walk this path. Other things that we did that were pretty interesting uh, were around environmental monitoring. So, you know, we go out and do mitigation for new construction and being able to check plant health. We gave a go at monitoring underwater mm. vegetation, so eelgrass. RGB cameras, you know, can, it can be a challenge with that, but mm. our conditions were pretty good you know, hit it, hit it low tide, a lot of organization, a lot of, a lot of learning of different factors that don't typically use in construction. Mm. So that was neat. And then, you know, really got into our, like I said, our bread and butter, I'd say, you know, surveying, of course, uh, is our number one, I'd say communications is our number two, just getting out there and engaging with the public. And what I, what I love about that and, and also our, our 3D project visualization that you touched on earlier is that it, it's such an equitable way to communicate with people. Mm. Images, videos, visualizations, it doesn't matter what your background is, what your economic status is, what language you speak. You go out there yeah. and you see something with your eyes. And so that's, that's been a really fun part of this. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I've thought about that. I hadn't actually looked at it through the lens of, of equality, but yeah, I mean, everyone's got different backgrounds and, you know, my background's in construction. So if you send a, a set of blueprints, that, that, that makes sense to me. I get that, right? Because that's aligned with my background, but not everyone has that, right? So it, it's, I, I, again, I never looked at it through that lens, but that's a cool way of, of looking at it. So well, let's kind of dive into a little bit about the program itself. All right. So I'm assuming the, your mentor that recruited you back however many years or so ago, he has moved forward onto other things, maybe retired or something. So you're leading the program. Is that right? Uh, for the most part, yeah. So we have a program manager who's my manager who has kind of the, the authority to do things. But my position's technically called the flight operations coordinator. So I'm really the person that that dives in, does the day-to-day -day type work, and has a good technical understanding. And then I rely on my boss to, you know, help help get those roadblocks out of the way. Now you have a couple of pilots that help you, is that right? So the way that the way that we're set up is so it's the program manager, flight operations coordinator. And then we break it out into disciplines. And so each discipline has uh, what we call a chief pilot. So, uh, you know, I can't be, I can't be an expert at everything. I'm not, I'm not a bridge designer, right. you know, I'm, I'm, I can't, I can't do that. So 
we we want to enable folks through this program to be experts in their fields and then i can come in there and help them with the technology with the processes with the regulations really what the upper end what what we're responsible for is safe and legal operations right and then okay. being kind of tech experts and tech evangelists you know doing things like this so uh, we rely on those chief pilots to to go from here's here's the program and then here's you know, the specific standard operating procedures for the job that we need to accomplish. Okay. So if you've got, you know, I'll just say in environmental, right? So you've got someone in environmental and, you know, I'll, I'll attack this two different ways. One, let's just say that they want to, um, that they have a need and they, they want to, they want to have the skills and knowledge to operate a drone to collect their own data. What's their path? And then if there's someone who needs drone data, but they're not interested in being a pilot or whatever, but there's this one project or whatever, What's the path for them for being able to get uh, that data? Sure. So for evaluating new pilots to enter the program, first, you know, we just have a conversation. We sit down and we talk about, okay, what what are you trying to accomplish? Again, is this the right tool? People look at new technology as a silver bullet, uh, mm-hmm. and that's never the case. So first we set expectations. And then the second most important thing to me is that we have pilots that are flying. A lot of people get really excited about the technology. They want to go out, you know, maybe they have one at home and they're, you know, they're good at it and they like to fly. And they go, oh, I can get paid for this. This is great. But there's an expectation of currency here, you know. So, you know, if you don't use mm-hmm. it, you you lose it. And so, you know, we expect our pilots to fly. And so if we make new pilots kind of justify why they should be part of the program. You know, what type of work are they going to do? How are they going to keep busy? Do they have a plan to stay current? Or is this something that, you know, someone else can service for them? And so we go through and look at that. And if, you know, would they, your team be the one that services for them if, if they can't justify those things? And, you know, you know, I mean, you know, it's not going to be a, a long-term, a good long-term investment. Would, would you or someone in your team fly that mission for them for that one instance? Yeah, typically it's usually us, especially if it's something more specialized, but if it, you know, geographically, it doesn't always make sense for us to hop mm-hmm. out there. So if we have some pilots that you know have have a lot of good experience, say maybe in Central or Eastern Oregon, that we think um, could help us out, we can call them up, and if they have capacity, they'll hop over mm-hmm. and and help them out. So I would imagine that you get someone who calls you, and they, as you said, I think it's perfect. They get really excited about the tool, right? Oh, it's a magic bullet. I've seen a really cool YouTube video. I want in on this, right? So they call you, and and you have a discussion. And it's on the bubble, you know, you don't know if it's one part excited uh, or if it's legitimate like value. So you have to kind of make a judgment call. What are some of the things that you like in your program, do you require them to do? And, and I'm going to ask a couple of specific things like obviously part 107, getting that license is critical. Do they need to come, did they need to have that in hand in order to come to you to enter the program? Or is it something that they would express an interest and then there's some resources you provide them and of course, there's dollars that go along with taking the test and the training and all that kind of stuff. So, so how do you how do you kind of manage that? Yeah, definitely. We've you know we've seen um, when we offer everything on our end, it's everybody's easy to say yes, right? But then they don't have that ownership and don't necessarily have the follow through. So we're we're trying to push some of the responsibility back to the pilots. So someone will come to me and we'll talk about it. And if we want to move forward, I'll give them recommendations for study materials for part 107. So they don't necessarily have to have it during the initial conversation, but we say, okay, you're going to move forward. We ask them to go through, work with their manager. Hopefully they'll, they'll cover the costs there. And they typically do. 
Um, but you need to go and pass your 107 before we talk anymore. So mm-hmm. that's that's your responsibility. And then once they pass their part 107, we have an internal training program that that we run them through. And so with that, it's 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 pretty basic, but it starts off with half a day online after they pass 107 to talk to kind of recap the highlights of 107, obviously, and then go through what it means to be a pilot for ODOT. What is our program requirements ask of them? And then after that, we go and do a hands-on day because we all know there's no hands-on to be a part 107. So some pilots have come in with past experience, work at home, work with other jobs. So they make it really easy. Other folks aren't necessarily, you know, really tech savvy and it, this scares them a little bit. So well, we spend some time with them, show them what an operation looks like from our standpoint, give them some time to get familiar with the equipment, get comfortable flying around. And then we then we do some flight exercises. And again, it's not super extensive. It's just to see first, do they have a basic understanding of how the controls work? But then also we put them in some scenarios where I know they're going to fail. And so... Mm. You know, like one that we do is we fly the drone a certain distance away and we say, I'm going to start a timer. You have 10 seconds to get this on the ground. And I know that there's no way that they can do that, but I want to see how they react when they're under pressure because every pilot gets into a... You sure you weren't a professor in another <laughs> life or something? Because, you know, we, we don't get to pay it a lot, but there's little, those little things that we, we can do to students that just, you know, put them in a, in a panic. Those, that's the real reason we're in this job. I was, I a, I was a TA for a little bit, so maybe that rubbed <laughs> off. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Uh, that, you know, that's awesome. I interrupted you, though, so tell me, keep going about that, that program. Sure. So, um, yeah, after that, we kind of make a decision on, you know, whether or not they're they're ready to go now, or maybe they need a little bit more practice. And so we can either match them up with another pilot or leave them, leave them a little practice drone or something like that. And then depending on which discipline they go into, we'll move to a, another section, another day or possibly two of discipline specific training. And so like survey, obviously, you know, mission planning, ground control, processing and things like that's a big part of it. That's why they're, that's why they're becoming part of the program. So we'll do kind of basic Yes, you can operate and then follow up with here's here's how you do your specific job. Okay. So a, a few things I'm going to kind of dive into. I, I mean, I have found that over the years when Part 107 came out, I mean, and even for several years after that, the big thing was, oh, we're going to get our pay, people certified. So let's go, let's go pay a trainer. We're going to get 30 people in this classroom. We're going to pay for them to have a week's worth of time off. They're going to spend 40 hours studying. We're going to give them another day to go take the test. And we got all these, we got, we got 40 pilots, right? And, and everyone's excited. And then you check back with them in a year, you got one, right? So there's this huge investment in getting, getting that license and then nothing, right? So uh, I love what you're doing. And, and this, is, uh, this seems to be the trend is that, look, if you want to play the game, you got you to gotta show a little initiative. There's tons of resources that are online. There's a bunch of YouTube videos. There's books. There's a lot. You can, in your own initiative, you can you can pass that exam if you kind of find those resources or spend two hundred dollars in one of those online training places. You know, it can be done. So I love the, not a huge barrier entry, but it's something to kind of you know to use an academic term, kind of weed out those who are really committed from those who are not. So love that you guys do that. A lot of folks do that. And I think you guys are, are spot on. Love the fact that you, you know, you bring folks in and you have kind of a, a variable training approach where you do have real time stick time where you go out and evaluate, see how they do. Again, to your point, some 
grew up with controllers in their hand and iPads in their hand, and it's more intuitive, others less so. And I think it's cool that you, you if, it, if the demand is there, you leave them with a drone to do like a training drone to practice. And that some of your training is specific for surveying stuff. I know you have a background in that. So that ground control points and photogrammetry and all of the things that go along with that makes sense. But I'm sure that those other disciplines, environmental, you know, I don't think you mentioned bridge inspections. Maybe you did. You know, there are all things that go in there that are unique to that training. So that makes, that makes tons of sense. Can you talk a little bit uh, about what happens then? So uh, they part 107, they do great. They do your training. They pass all that. They're competent. They're looking good. Are they issued a drone at that point by you or their department? No. So that's another thing where we feel like them having buy-in is important as well. So they'll they'll consult with me just to make sure that they're buying equipment that will accomplish what they want to accomplish, but also that it integrates with you know the different software packages that that we have mm-hmm. uh, because I want to make their life easy. The reporting, the flight logs, everybody doesn't want to do those, <laughs> so I want to make that as easily uh, as possible to to Nobody get done. Nobody wants to do them. Just uh, some people are more willing to do them. Yeah. To see the value. <laughs> Yeah, well, there, you know, all that stuff's required. So, and we have in our state, we have to report every flight to our Department of Aviation at the end of the year. So, uh, that's a lot of a lot of paperwork for me at the end. So, I want to make sure that they're successful. But, so I work with them to make sure that you know they have they have the technology that they want to accomplish the mission that they want to accomplish, and then uh, it's up on the individual crew to go out and uh, go buy buy the equipment for themselves. And I'm, you know, obviously I'm here to to help them through that process, but they need to come up with the money to do it. So, okay, that makes perfect sense. And I love the fact that that's just like more buy-in by not just them, but also their department, who's going to now start shelling out a couple of thousand dollars probably for depending upon what, what they buy. So how about uh, recurrency? And, you know, obviously the FAA requires, a, you know, a little bit of training just to keep your, your license current. But what, what above and beyond that do you guys do to make sure that they are, they're flying and that the skill hasn't gotten rusty on them? Sure. So our our kind of normal operating flight currency is you need to have three flights in the last 45 days to go out and do project what I call project work. So to to get those three flights, it's just essentially you go to a site that has little to no risk. So no traffic, no people, no structures, you know, an open open rock pit, something like that. And then as you go out and do your project work, that goes towards your currency. So we want to make sure that you know you have some fairly recent stick time. Uh, but I found that that wasn't quite enough. So, you know, we'd mentioned before that you, know, you get people that are excited to get all these pilots that come in and then they don't end up flying. And then I reach out to them and say, okay, you know, I see that you haven't been engaged. Can I take you out of the program and not worry about record keeping things like, oh, no, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to fly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, and then that, you know, the, the behavior continues. And so this last year we put in an annual currency requirement where they have to fly at least 10 flights or two hours each year. And if they don't do that, they kind of get suspended until they have to go through and take the FAA recurrency training and then go through our our training program again. So that should help, I think, weed out the folks that aren't working. And, you know, what I've seen is the the pilots that are flying, they fly a lot. Mm -hmm. The pilots that don't aren't flying at all. And so it's a pretty clear cut line and so this is going to be my first year with sending out those notifications. So we'll see, we'll see how that's taken. Right. I'm do it after Christmas, you know, yeah, so, definitely. You, know, <laughs> you know, it doesn't impact any parties or gifts or anything that you might, uh, you know, Christmas list, that kind of stuff. 
So, and, and that makes perfect sense. And I think you said, you said 10 flights or two hours per year. Is that right? Correct. And that's, and that's superseding the three flights every 45 days. Is that right? So it kind of so gives them a little bit more flexibility. What, what that does is the, the annual one is to make sure that you're just, you're engaged throughout the year. The other one is to make sure that you have current stick time. If you're going to go out and fly around, you know, we're a transportation agency, so we're going to be around people. We're going to be around vehicles. So you have to be, you know, on top of your muscle memory there. So, um, kind of two different, two different approaches to, for two different, um, things there. Now this, this is not as big a deal as it once was, at least not in the DOT worlds because, you know, drone tech is just becoming the norm in other industries. And maybe in years past, you would have to sell, you know, this new tool to your management, you know, and justify why you have it. So it's not as big a deal anymore just because it's so popular and it's maybe just been more ingrained in the, in the transportation industry that it's just, it works and everyone's doing it. And so we got to do it. So you don't have to justify it as much, but um, what, if, if, do you have to justify expenses of the line and, and how do you, how do you justify it to your boss and your boss's boss and up the line that this is a, this is a valuable tool. It's worth continuing to invest dollars year over year. How do you, how do you do that? Sure. Yeah. And having, Having the responsibility, especially the financial responsibility spread out makes that a little bit easier because it's not all on me um, to justify it as a program. Typically, it's more everybody needs to kind of justify why they're involved in it. But our our mission statement, so my, my unit, we're called the Engineering Technology Advancement Unit. And in our mission statement, every everything that we look at should be focused on improving safety, efficiency, and accuracy. And drones do all three of those. And so, you know, it's, it's a logical fit and we're able to show all three of those typically on, on every application. And so, you know, going out, um, one construction project, we had a big curve realignment that, that happened out in Eastern Oregon. And we went out there first to just take some pretty pictures, right? You know, let's, let's get some stuff for the website, for the public meeting. We said, well, while we're out here, why don't we just fly a quick mapping mission? We're not going to put any control down. We'll just fly it and just have that. And they came back and said, whoa, you can make you know, a point cloud out of this. Um, the contractor's starting to get a little bit behind on their earthwork. Could you guys come out every month and monitor uh, mm-hmm. to help us quantify you know, pay quantities and scheduling and things like that? And so luckily our folks were talented enough to use existing control points and, and get things tied in for the, for the future missions. But it got to a point where uh, there were some claims that were coming out. And at the end of the project, and, and we had this data to back it up. It was fairly new at the mm-hmm. time. And uh, we showed them what we had. We had that surveyor stamp on it. And we never heard anything from the contractor again because they oh. knew we had full coverage. We had, you know, every month we had a snapshot and they didn't have an argument anymore. So just that, just that one project right there saved us so much time in court, potential claim payouts, all of those things yeah. is finding just having a couple of big wins gives us enough space to go try kind of the more fringe applications as well. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that makes a lot of sense. And I hear that in other industries too. When I talk with law enforcement folk, they, they say, you know, the cost of a drone compared to a, a single mission with a manned helicopter, you know, just the cost of that, let alone the safety impact of flying, you know, those aircraft low to the ground or for contractors who have to have aerial progress monitoring shots, 
you know, if they're in a rural place hiring a manned aircraft, or even if it's an if it's an urban place, you know, you can you can usually pay for your hardware in a really short period of time. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Just kind of pointing out the big stuff, so that you can you know use that as cover for doing the the things that are. I don't want to say little stuff, but sometimes a little harder to quantify the direct value, especially in terms of dollars. I think that makes a lot of sense. So one final question here, um, and this is a question that uh, I, I know you're, you know, Department of Transportation, but this is kind of more uh, for any kind of government municipality. You know, if, if someone wants to stand up a drone program, and let's just say they got a little bit of money, you know, you know, their boss, you know, got wind of a cool YouTube video or something and says, you know, Bob, you know, make it happen. And Bob has been kind of excited about it anyway, and they want to stand up a program. If you were to talk to this fictitious Bob, what kind of advice would you give them about standing up a drone program responsibly and effectively? Sure. You know, I, I always think start small, but think big. So, you know, you don't want this to expand so fast. We talked about a lot of a lot of heartache through programs growing, um, growing too quickly, not being able to support it. So, you know, make, make sure you're proving that value. Just have a couple pilots, have one or two drones but if you're successful in what you're trying to do, it's going to catch like wildfire. And so be prepared for, for it to grow. Think about what does this look like for record keeping? You know, are we going to buy, you know, a, an online cloud-based flight log software or what, you know, because IT is the hardest part realistically mm-hmm. in, in government and public agencies. So, you know, it's just, you don't have to get all the way through that, but start thinking about those things. And then again, you know, make sure that your pilots have enough work, make sure that they're out there flying. For most people, this is another part of their job. You know, not, not a ton of public agencies have dedicated pilots. So even if there is a use case, do they have capacity to do it? Um, Because Mm -hmm. it does take time, it takes some practice and you need to keep it up. And so do they even have capacity in their day to day to go out there and do this? Another thing is be comfortable telling your potential customers no. Hmm. They, you know, I, I always encourage people to bring their wildest ideas to me. And I, you know, the worst I can say is not yet. Uh, I don't, I never want to say no, just not yet. Right. But, you know, sometimes it's, again, it's not the right tool. It's not the right application. Sometimes a manned aircraft is the answer because you're looking for, you know, a really long corridor and that that's end up being cheaper than, you know, two right. weeks flying a drone spot to spot. And then finally, right. you know, set, ex, set expectations and hold your pilots accountable to them. Okay. Yeah, because it can it can grow. It, it this is a program. This is something that needs managed. And so, if you let it get out of control, it just takes away from the time where you can be productive when you're just trying to wrangle in folks that are kind of on the fringe of the program and not really engaging so much. Oh, wow, that's Chris. That that is awesome advice. I really appreciate you uh, you bullet pointing that out. And and that's that'll do it for this show, Chris. I want to thank you so much for being on. Um, you know, it's incredible listening to your story and what you're doing over there. You're doing great stuff in Oregon. I think you're you you can be the model for a lot of other state DOTs and other municipalities and and private companies can look at what you're doing and and uh, and model some of the things that they're doing. And at the end there, when you gave advice, that's that's dynamite. It's really. You can tell that you've been through the trenches. This is not academic. These are these are things that you might have wished you had been told a few years or so ago. And and I appreciate you sharing that with us. Yes, it's been great. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you all for listening. Uh, if you have a chance, uh, please do subscribe or hit that like button. That does help the old Apple and Google algorithm to move us towards the top. So I appreciate you doing that, especially as we're just starting this podcast. So thanks again for listening, Chris. Thanks for being on. Look forward to doing this again.
Thanks for listening to the Clemson Drone Podcast. Don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Learn more about our online training offerings by going to ClemsonDrone.com. Thanks again. And remember, at Clemson Drone, the sky is not the limit, it's just the beginning.